Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning, Lord. We worship you and praise you, Father, for sacrificing your holy and perfect Son for an imperfect people. Father, we just pray this morning that as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit would be upon us. Father, that you would reveal to us what you want revealed, and that we would understand, and that you would grant us wisdom. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. To ask you to bear with me a little bit, I have a little bit of allergies going on, so there might be a few sniffles here and there, but Lord willing, we'll get through this together. Um, this morning's text will be First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, but before we dive into that, I just wanted to give a brief overview of First Corinthians. Uh, Paul wrote First Corinthians to address reports of fractional strife within the church. He also addresses sexual immorality and confusion on the resurrection of the dead. He also addressed several questions that he received from the Corinthian church regarding different topics, including marriage, the unmarried widows, food and idols, and spiritual gifts. You can spot these answers to questions as he starts each of them, typically with about or concerning. Ultimately, though, 1 Corinthians was written to call the church to unite in understanding and conviction, to repent from sin, and to grow and be sanctified through the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Spurgeon says of 1 Corinthians, The most gifted church is not always in the healthiest condition. A church may have rich, influential, influential or learned members, yet that church may be in an unhealthy condition. Such was the case with the church at Corinth. Paul, in the opening of his letter, told them that he thanked God always on their behalf for the grace of God given to them by Christ Jesus, that in everything they were enriched in all speech and all knowledge, so they did not lack any spiritual gift, waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus. The Corinthians were what we would call a first-class church. They had many who understood much of the learning of the Greeks. They were also people of classic taste and people of good understanding, people of profound knowledge. And yet in spiritual health, that church was one of the worst in all of Greece and perhaps in the world. Among all the churches, one could not find another church, church sunk so low as this one, although it was the most gifted. In the opening of the letter, Paul hinted the purpose of the church was to confirm the testimony about Christ. If a church does not use its gifts and resources for that purpose, it misses the whole point of its existence. <clears throat> now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. It's very popular for weddings and tends to be associated directly with marriage. A lot of times when we're already familiar with a section of scripture, we have a tendency to kind of zip through it in our devotions and we lose the weight of it. This morning as we dive deeper into it, I want us to focus not on love in the context of marriage, but on brotherly love, love within the body, 
and Christ's love for the church. I believe this was Paul's primary intent for this chapter, as most of 1 Corinthians is addressing conduct in the body and issues within the church. With that introduction, let's read this morning's text. Stand me, if you would, for the reading of God's word. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love will never end, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease, As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You may be seated. The first point of this morning's sermon, I have titled, The Importance of Love, focusing on verses 1 through 3. In these first few verses, Paul is driving home the importance of love for the believer and for the church. Notice he uses several examples of gifts or works within the church that the Corinthians had prided themselves in or placed in high regard. If you rewind to the beginning of 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is already acknowledging the church was excelling in speech, knowledge, spiritual gifts, but then in chapter 13, he's pointing out that they are lacking in love and that it's more important than all these other things. Paul tells us that love is the greatest of spiritual gifts. It is one of the most basic, yet the most principal fruits of the Spirit. For new believers, this should be one of the first places we look for fruit. Parents, if you have children that are professing the faith, hold them accountable to this charge. 
As believers, we should be showing love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is an easy teachable moment or chance for godly correction in our homes. Speaking in tongues and prophecy were specifically referenced by Paul in comparison to love because it was something the Corinthian church prided themselves in. Recall the church was very blessed in spiritual gifts. I can imagine in the early church, as some of these new spiritual gifts were emerging, it would be easy to measure one's holiness or devotion to Christ by one, <clears throat> one's ability in these spiritual gifts. But Paul makes a point early on in the chapter, in chapter 13, to stress of how much more important love is. Love is above all knowledge. If we examine ourselves, church, I would say this is probably the most likely area for us to fall short. As we are the, <coughs> are, are we as the body of Christ prioritizing love for one another above all knowledge? It's an easy trap to fall into. I'm not by saying by any means that the pursuit of knowledge is a bad thing, but it's pretty clear here in Scripture where our priorities should be. Verse 2 says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Those are some strong words. Nothing. I'm nothing without love. I can have all the knowledge, know every Bible verse by heart, study every work of scholars around me. I can have the most rock-solid faith. But if I do not have love for the body of Christ, I am nothing. I can give away all my possessions, be the most charitable person in town. I can even die for the sake of Christ. And yet if I do not have love, I have gained nothing. I can imagine as the Corinthian church read these words, it cut them to the heart, as it should. I know I was cut to the heart as I studied this chapter in preparation. I think the importance of love can be summed up by the two greatest commandments as Christ proclaimed them in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the first and greatest commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we have established that love is important. It's not just a suggestion, not just something we need to work on. It's a commandment. It's the greatest commandment in Christ's own words. So why is love so important? Again, here I'm going to reference a scripture I'm sure you all have memorized, but I can't think of a verse more fitting than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It was God's love for us, for the body of Christ that compelled him to sacrifice his Son, his perfect, holy, blameless Son sacrificed for us while we were yet sinners. Imagine the depth of God's love for us. I think we read John 3.16 and forget what it really means. We get so used to categorizing it in our memory bank as a reference, as a basic gospel passage to share with others, and we forget. We forget the weight of it, that God gave up his only son for me, for you, for all of us, even while we were still sinners. Even though we can't manage to love one another, even though we continue to fail and fall back into sin, that's how great his love is for us. This is how we're called to love one another. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As Christ is praying to the Father before his crucifixion, He's literally praying for us, us here this morning. He's about to face a horrific death on the cross, and he knows this, and he's taking time to pray for us. It is this love that leads him to the cross, and it's this love that gives him strength to endure the cross. I submit to you this morning that love is so important because the gospel of Jesus Christ is love. All of God's creation and all of eternity are built on this love. Now this is where it gets a little difficult. What does love look like? In verses 4 through 7, Paul gives us a detailed list of what love is and what love isn't. And church, as we read through these couple verses, please keep an open heart and let's really examine ourselves here. 
Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So what is love? First couple examples we get. Love is patient and kind. Are we patient with one another? Are we patient with our kids? I absolutely fall short here. Are we patient waiting on the Lord to meet our needs? Are we kind to one another? Not just tolerant of one another, not just polite, but genuinely kind? Are we kind to those we don't particularly care for? Are we kind to those around us who aren't in our circle of friends? To those in the community around us as we are representing the body of Christ? What love isn't? Love isn't arrogant. The dictionary defines arrogance as having or revealing an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. So love is not only our physical outward actions to those around us, but a heart condition. You can't properly love your brother if you are too focused on yourself. You make yourself hard to love if you're giving off the sense that you think highly of yourself. Love isn't rude. It's easy to be rude to one another, isn't it, church? And I'm not talking about in-your-face, obvious, blatant, rude behavior. I'm talking about the small, little, snarky comments, the inconsiderate actions that seemingly are not important, but when compounded over time, are just plain rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's my way or the highway, right? Any of you ever tell your kids that? There may be times that we feel that our way is the best way, but if we love one another, we do not insist on it. We are open to conversation, we're approachable, we're willing to compromise or consider someone else's opinion or convictions. Love is not irritable. If there's any parent in this room that can honestly say they've never been irritable, I'd like to shake your hand. Seriously though, We're all irritable at times. But have we become numb to it? Kind of accepted it, accepted irritability as a personality trait? Or are we recognizing that this is an area of our lives that we need to repent in? 
Love does not keep a record of wrongs. And this does not mean that we are to put up and ignore, put up with and ignore wrongs. But if someone wrongs you and repents, it's time to let go and move on. Matthew 18, 21 says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. So if your brother has sinned against you and repents, let it go. Don't keep a record of it. Husbands and wives, do not keep a record of each other's wrongs. I'm telling you, your marriage will suffer indefinitely until you let it go. And the same goes for the body of Christ. Repent to one another and live with one another in love and forgiveness. Some of your translations in this chapter say love is not resentful. Here's another one I'm going to pull out a dictionary definition for as I think sometimes it loses uh, loss in translation, but resentful is defined as the feeling or expressing bitterness or indignation at having been treated unfairly. So when Paul says that love is not resentful, the problem here isn't having been treated unfairly. That is wrong. The problem is how we react to being treated unfairly. Life is not always just. We can't control what happens to us. Not always, anyhow. But we can control how we react to what happens to us. If a brother or sister in Christ wrongs you or treats you unfairly, what is the knee-jerk reaction? Is it to feel bitter about it? Or to confront them in love to seek a godly resolution? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. I think here it's easy to look at ourselves and say, I don't rejoice in unrighteousness. But if you take a look from a third-party perspective here, do we enjoy the gossip and drama surrounding unrighteousness? Are our ears itching to hear how others have been wronged or how others have fell into sin or fall short? Or does it burden us to see sin in the body, to see a brother struggling? Are we burdened by that? Are we guarding our hearts from falling into the trap of gossip and slander? Love does not envy. Do we envy what our neighbor has? Are we not satisfied with what the Lord has given to us? Love does not boast. Do we boast in our own accomplishments or do we boast in the Lord? 
2 Corinthians 10.14 says, For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So if we are to boast, we boast in the Lord for his accomplishments through us. Next section is love in action. What does love look like in action? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So what does bearing all things look like in the context of the body of Christ? Does it mean that we take abuse or mistreatment? By no means, if a brother wrongs you, it is your duty to confront them about it via the Matthew 18 model. Sometimes loving your brother is saying the things that are hard to say but need to be said. But bearing with one another does mean we will bear with our brother's weaknesses there is a distinction between weakness and sin. We will fight with them through their struggles. We will bear with them through their burdens. We will be there for them when it isn't convenient. When it's depressing or draining to be around them. We will bear through some of the personality quirks that just rub, just kind of rub us the wrong way. This is bearing with one another, praying for each other in times of trials. Even if it's the 800th, 800th time that you've prayed for them for the same problem, church, let us bear one another's burdens and not be burdened by one another. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. <clears throat> Church, I submit, if Christ bore our sins on the cross for us, we can bear with one another. <coughs> Love believes all things. I think we can obviously make the conclusion here. This doesn't mean to believe everything that is told to you but this does believe, mean believing that God's promises to us are true. It also means believing one another in the body. 
If your brother comes to you in love with something, believe them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Brothers, how are we supposed to sharpen one another and hold each other accountable if we don't even believe one another? Hope. Love hopes all things. We have our hope set in Jesus Christ in his promise to deliver us from sin and the grave. We have hope that we can be set free from our sin. We will never give up hope for a brother caught in sin. We will continue to pray for them. We will never give up hope for a wayward child or one in rebellion. We will never give up hope for our spouses who just can't seem to change. We will never give up hope that we can change in our own struggles. Love endures all things. We will endure the trials of this world together, church. We will endure with one another. We are called to endure the trials and hardships that sometimes come along with relationships both in marriage and in the body. How are we to expect Christ to endure our shortcomings if we don't endure one another's? Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endures, endured the cross, despising the shame and sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. In a nutshell, love is selfless. Love is the act of being selfless, of loving others as ourselves, considering others before ourselves, placing our brother's needs above our own, considering our brother's feelings before our own. Husbands, this is placing your wife and her well-being before your own. Ephesians 5.28 says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Next section is how long does love last? Verses 8 through 10. <clears throat> love never ends, but as for the prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. 
His love is eternal. It will never end. Notice again here, Paul references speaking in tongues, prophecies, and knowledge. To reiterate once again to the Corinthian church that the things they prided themselves in will cease to exist, but love will prevail. Everything around us, this church, this town, our homes, will one day be reduced to rubble, yet love will remain. Everything on this earth has an expiration date. Every book we ever read will one day be meaningless dust. All the knowledge we accumulate on this earth will one day come to an end, but love will prevail. Christ's love for us is eternal. As eternal as the salvation he secured for us on the cross. And brothers, the love that we have for one another is eternal as well. Let's not forget that. Our love for one another will endure even the grave as we rejoice together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verses 11 through 13. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. As we grow in love with Christ and with one another in the body, he will sanctify us and we will put aside childish things. The childish, petty problems of this world that mean nothing on the other side of glory will be put aside when we turn our eyes to Christ. We, as the body of Christ, must remain focused on Christ's love first and foremost, and secondly, on the love that he has commanded us to have for one another. As we do this, church, he will sanctify us, and we will see him more clearly. Church, let us not make light of the love Christ has for his body that same love we are commanded to have for one another, that same love that saved us from our sin and the grave. Our knowledge and understanding of the mysteries of God are merely blurred glimpses this side of glory. But when we are with the Lord in heaven, it will all become clear. We will be able to fully understand what God is trying to tell us here through his servant Paul, the profound mystery of his love for us. And finally, faith, hope, and love.
We have faith in God that his promises are true and he has redeemed us through Christ Jesus. We have faith that he will one day resurrect us from the dead. We have hope in the eternal glory to come. But when we are rejoicing in heaven, there will be no more need for faith and hope as they have will, been, have, will have been fulfilled, but love will remain. So why is love the greatest? Because it's ultimately in God's love that we place our faith and our hope in. Church, this morning my prayer for us so Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that may Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, I pray that you, being rooted firmly and established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So, what is love? Is it definable? Is it tangible? Can we see it? I submit to you that love is Christ's body broken for us. God sacrificing his own son for our sin. Love is our savior beaten, tortured, bloodied, hanging on a cross, for a crime he did not commit, for our sin. Brothers and sisters, this is love. This is the example that God has given to us. This is the love that he commands us to have for one another. We are blessed this morning to be able to partake together in this love through the fellowship of communion. Here at Providence, the communion table is open to everyone who is a professing believer. So I'll ask that the worship team come forward. And as the music starts, I would ask that the rows in the back come forward to receive the elements. And we would work our way forward. And once everyone has received them, we'll partake together. Let's transition in prayer. <clears throat>